Well, I, I thought I should start with, you know, the uh, somewhat, you know, turn my face to the political uh, by way of a starting point, you know, at a time when we are all so deeply anxious about the the fate of universities. Um, it can seem um, self-indulgent to worry about the contestations of non-monetary or kind of literary value or you know calibrations of literary value, um, the the withdrawal of direct public funding for the teaching of the humanities has has introduced uh, a horrendous logic of the marketplace, uh, whereby um, as. Uh, Keith Thomas um, argues in a recent uh, LRB article that um, the students, you know, are very partners for discussions uh, on what what a cl classic might be. Uh, that they are no longer our partners in the joint enterprise of uh, learning and understanding, but are consumers seeking the cheapest deals that will enable them to emerge with the highest earning prospects. So uh, common sense dictates that we shelve the question of the classic right away and uh, replace it with sort of burning questions such as uh, why higher education, what is a university, etc. You could alternatively argue that times of great social and cultural change and, and uncertainty are propitious for assessing and inventing the relationship between the world, the text and the critic, to use Edward Said's uh, very powerful formulation of what constitutes English studies. The, the, the title of my book, which uh, Dominic uh, mentioned, uh, comes from two 20th century lectures, both called What is a Classic, given by T.S. Eliot and James Kudzir in a space of 47 years. Eliot's is a presidential address delivered before the Virgil Society uh, in October 1944. The Blitz had resumed early that year and London that summer had been introduced to flying bombs. Um, it is only by hindsight, uh, T.S. Eliot says, it's only by hindsight and in historical perspective that a classic can be known as such. And this is how muses the war-weary middle-aged Eliot as he pits the classic against the contingent, um, the racial and national against um, the international, the absolute um, against the errant. James Kutzia's lecture, which was given in Aust Austria in 1991, um, year, a year after the fall of the apartheid uh, regime, um, again, like T.S. Eliot's, does not reference the, um, the incendiary political con context directly. Um, his back garden, he talks about his back garden in the lecture, like T.S. Eliot's War Ravaged London, is represented as timeless and spatially undifferentiated. In the lecture that follows, Kudzia's re-examination re of the metropolitan versus the provincial, the classic versus the barbarian, could be said to refer obliquely to the relationship between South African cultural production and international aesthetic paradigms, and to the 1990s South African cultural debates to find a new settlement between uh, the domestic and, uh, and the international. Kudzia's evocation of the function of criticism especially brings up the ghosts of both T.S. Eliot and Matthew Arnold um, and the, this the age-old duty of the critic to eschew the antinomian inner voice that urges doing as one likes and assuming uh, or attuning oneself instead to the higher authority embodied in the literary canon.
Criticism is worldly and in the world so long as it opposes monocentrism, says Edward Said in The World That Acts the Critic. Whether it is the monocentrism of war, the suzerainty of autocratic states, or the philistinism of regimes of government regulation and audit, as embodied, in our case, in the Brown reports and the white papers. The time of the classic, I'd, I'd therefore argue, is now and its place is also here. Now, what is a classic? I mean, of course, I've had many a dinner table conversation where I have been asked, you know, with a swagger, so what, what is a classic, you think? And, and I, wish I, I wish I was in a sort of uh, position where I could answer it without, uh, without trepidation or shame, you know, because there is a certain kind of cultural authority you need to assume to be able to plug the desiring dialectic um, of the question with a definitive answer, 44 books, etc. Um, but, uh, to kind of you know, throw out some, some definitions that have been useful for me as I thought through it. Um, it's a book that is read long after it was written and that demands rereading. Um, can you say what makes a classic? James Kudzia was asked at an, um, in an interview once and he came up with a 2000 year old definition. I have nothing better to offer than to fall back on what Horace said, which is that it's a book that has somehow managed to stay around for a long time, uh, says John Kudzia. When pressed further on titles of foundational texts, and this happens when you uh, start talking about the classic, Kudzia uh, reluctantly names uh, the Bible and the Iliad. So the, the, the classic shares with the canon, I'm falling back on uh, Harold Bloom's ideas of the canon, which, which most of us have very, a very problematic uh, yet vexed affiliation with. So the classic shares with the canon a strangeness. You know, Bloom said that you know, the, what distinguishes a great canonical work is that it is a mode of originality that cannot be assimilated or that so assimilates us that we cease to see it as strange. So the classic produces startlement, another sort of very Bloomian word, startlement, rather than recognition or a fulfillment of expectation. It ushers a polymorphous textuality. In, in his wonderful essay, Aphorism, Countertime, Jacques Derrida says that um, the survival of Romeo and Juliet is down to its capacity to be restaged, recontextualized, reimagined. And the classic, and this is, this is kind of where um, it is an important kind of um, question for the critic, it assumes um, the dimension of criticism or interpretive traditions that uh, contest the definition of literary value. Um, in fact, what I have tried to show in my book is that the classic is inseparable from endless and unresolved contestations of the question, what is a classic? Um, if the canon implies continuity with the past or the perpetuation of tradition, the classic, and I'm making a distinction here between the classic and the canon as such, uh, is all that and something else. It is the survival of the classic, uh, Frank Commode says, depends on a sort of surplus of signifier. James Kutsia had reread Eliot's famous lecture in preparation for his, for his uh, famous lecture, he says. And, and the two essays read together, I, I will try to stick to that, you know, in my sort of pathetic attempt to affiliate myself to Kudzia and Eliot and, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the, the figure of the poet critic. Um, the, the two essays read together seem to suggest that if the classical criterion is of vital importance to literary criticism, the classic in turn is constituted by the criticism it receives down the ages. So it, it is a very peculiar codependence that uh, Eliot and, and Kudzia are setting up. The classic is that which survives critical questioning 
and in fact defines itself by that very surviving. So Eliot's and later Kutsia's investment in this question um, cannot be traduced to nostalgia for or valorization of the set standards and the idealized attitudes of canons. Um, uh, though, you know, you could argue that Eliot is addressing and nervously reinforcing the idea of the classic as European and Eurocentric. But it really is, is up to Kudzia's lecture, which is a kind of classic reiteration of a classic lecture, to kind of draw the un unsaid implications in um, Eliot's lecture about the afterlife of this question in trans or international criticism. A classic occurs when a civilization is mature and a language and literature are mature and there is a community of taste and a common style. This is what T.S. Eliot says in What is a Classic? Eliot quickly identifies Virgil's Aeneid as the originary classic of all Europe. According to Eliot, a classic mind maintains an unconscious balance between past tradition and the originality of its contemporary moment. As heir to the undeveloped resources of the language, the poet is driven to outdo his predecessors, but that revolt serves to radicalize and recode tradition, not discontinue it. Virgil is a poet of the eternal metropolis, the empire of empires, Rome. He's not provincial, but Roman and European. He's a man of genius actuating the genius of his language. Um, and the classic in his hands expresses the maximum possible of the whole range of feeling of the people who speak that language. Um, uh, Eliot, Eliot says cheerfully that after Virgil, no great development was possible in the Latin language. Um, and he goes on to say more cheerfully that there is no classic in English. But there's a kind of very peculiar thing that's beginning to happen in the lecture. So if there is no classic, there is actually hope because once there is a classic, you don't grow anymore. English is a living language, it's, it's various, it's vagrant, <clears throat> and with possibly the greatest capacity of changing, Eliot says, yet remaining itself. We may be glad, Eliot says, that English has never achieved perfection in the work of one classic poet, for that perfection marks the stasis of death. According to Eliot, the classic criterion should be of vital importance to a language and literature, dead or alive. Without the application of the classical measure, we become provincial with distorted values, confounding the ephemeral with time-honored uh, monuments. I mean, needless to say that, uh, you know, for uh, Eliot, war as he as he is, nauseous as he is from his uh, task of kind of, you know, um, fire watching um, and uh, Europe is still kind of, you know, in spite of it, the, its progressive mutilation and disfigurement, Europe is still the old organism from which new world harmonies, new world systems must develop. Um, in his 1991 reprisal of Eliot's lecture, Kutzia says that what struck him when he, what struck him most when he reread the lecture was that, and I quote Kutzia here, nowhere does Eliot reflect on the fact of his own Americanness, or at least his American origins, and therefore on the somewhat odd angle at which he comes, honoring a European poet to a European audience. As Kutzia points out, Eliot's project not only involves inventing a fully European identity for Virgil, but also claiming for England a very problematic European identity. 
How and why did Elliot himself become English enough for the issue to matter to him? Asks Kudzia. Why did Elliot become English at all? The motives, according to Kudzia, were confused and complex. Um, Anglophilia, of course, a strong identification with the English middle class, a certain um, uh, American self-loathing. Uh, um, uh, arguably... That. We know that. <laughs> Arguably, the world wars were instrumental in turning um, Eliot's cosmopolitanism to a paranoid and displaced nationalism. And according to uh, Kutsia, um, uh, Eliot uses the story of Aeneas as a fable of exile followed by um, nationalistic home founding to evoke the topography of his own life, um, appropriating the cultural weight of the epic to back himself. And who hasn't done that? Um, Eliot is remaking and resituating his national identity here, in other words, by inserting it in Western European and uh, a kind of a, a Catholic cosmopolitanism. Kutsia marvels at the way Eliot fashions this new identity, and I love, love this sentence, not on the basis of immigration, settlement, residence, domestication, acculturation, as mere mortals do, but by co-opting a convenient nationality and then resituating it within a larger narrative of, of cosmopolitanism. He is claiming a line of descent, and I'm quoting Kudzia again, less from the Eliots of New England and or Somerset than from Virgil and Dante. Halfway through the lecture, and I'm bringing this to a close, Kudzia very tellingly embarks on an autobiographical path. Um, and he says this is methodologically reckless, but will dra dramatize the issue. So Kudzia, the provincial, as we had suspected, you know, why does he pick up this, this old and tired question of the classic? Um, uh, as suspected, he, he says, he confesses that Kudzia, uh, Eliot, the provincial, is indeed a pattern and figure of uh, the belated author. Just as Virgil spoke across the ages to Eliot, Kudzia, age 15, had undergone the impact of the classic. An afternoon in the back garden, which I mentioned before, in the suburbs of Cape Town, when the music of Bach from the house next door um, pierces his ears, after which everything changed, Kudzia says. So the question then is, does the classic choose and enthrall us, or do we choose to be thus elected and reconfigured by a transcendent, um, transcendent um, ideal? Was that experience in the garden mystic or material, Kudzia himself wonders. Was I symbolically electing high European culture and command of the codes of that culture as a route that would take me out of my class position in white South African society and ultimately out of what I must have felt in terms however obscure or mystified as an historical dead end, a road that would culminate again symbolically with me on a platform in Europe addressing a cosmopolitan audience on Bach, T.S. Eliot, and the question of the classic, and I can't help sort of, you know, uh, thinking this sort of applies to my own <laughs> affiliations as well. Um, so really, what does it mean to say that I was being spoken to by a classic in 1955 when the self which is asking the question acknowledges that the classic, to say nothing of the self, is historically constituted, Kudzia asks. According to Eliot, the classical criterion is of vital importance to literary criticism. And as I said before, Kudzia takes this idea to its logical limit when he asserts that the function of criticism itself is determined by the classic. The function of criticism is defined by the classic, Kudzia says. Criticism is that which is duty-bound to interrogate the classic. 
rather than being the foe of the classic, criticism, and indeed criticism of the most skeptical kind, may be what classic uses, the classic uses to define itself and ensure its survival. It is through the questioning, translating, rewriting, and travesting of the classic that the classic then survives. As long as the classic needs to be protected from attack, Kudzia says, and Eliot seems to be saying, it can never prove itself classic. I wish to end, I wish to give the final lines to, uh, to, to literature and not to the literary critic, um, and, and wish to finish with a scene from James Kudzia's Elizabeth Costello, which the, the section which I'll read out, <coughs> rewrites um, kind of a, a, a portion of the testimony of Odysseus, though uh, I think you'll agree, in a, in a very different um, um, affective register um, than the kind of very taciturn one used by Odysseus himself. Um, uh, I, I, I wish to thank my, my teacher, Derek Attridge, for uh, alerting me to the passage and, and to also alerting to a very curious sort of misremembering that happens in this retelling of the Odyssey where Homer's goats become um, James Kutzia's ram. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll read it, but to end with my, my caveat, the classic is an idea it is often a reiteration of someone else's idea, which lives through change. So um, here you have um, kind of yet another sort of working definition of the classic. The classic is that which has a worldly capaciousness to range across genres, times, places. Um, it, it, has, um, it has a certain kind of class mobility and race mobility. Since we are talking about Homer, um, I was reminded of the 19th century, the very ambivalent denunciation of Homer that Nietzsche mounted in uh, Beyond Good and Evil, where he felt that uh, this barbaric work was going to become popular. It is going to, you know, really uh, generate many series of repetitions. Um, so as the classic keeps getting reprinted out of its original context and in the hands of each, each alien reader, it changes and thereby lives. So here is the, here is the quotation from Kutsia. There is an episode in the Odyssey that sends a shiver down her back. Odysseus has descended into the kingdom of the dead to consult the seer Tiresias. Following instructions, he digs a furrow, cuts the throat of his favorite ram, lets its blood flow into the furrow. As the blood pours, the pallid dead crowd around, slavering for a taste, until to hold them off, Odysseus has to draw his sword. The pool of dark blood, the expiring ram, the man at a crouch ready to thrust and stab if need be, the pale souls hard to distinguish from cadavers. Why does this scene haunt her? The ram is not just an idea, the ram is alive, though right now it is dying. If she believes in the ram, then does she believe in its blood too, this sacred liquid, sticky, dark, almost black, pumped out in gouts onto soil where nothing will grow. So yes, the ram is not just an idea, the ram is alive. Thank you very much. Thank you.